Tom Gardner here with uh, Chuck Royce, the founder and manager of the Royce family of funds, Royce and Associates. And this is a group of funds that focuses on small caps and that has outperformed the Russell 2000 during the period the Russell 2000 has been alive since, I guess, the late 1970s by about two percentage points a year. Going all the way back to inception, the Pennsylvania Mutual Fund has outperformed maybe 11.5 to 9.5% over the last 30 plus years. Is that is that a right Sure. Evaluation? Actually, Penn has been around 40, 40, yeah. 40 years, and we're thrilled that the 40-year returns are bumps into almost 14%. Almost fourteen percent, and the and the market, the Russell two thousand would be about. Well, the Russell wasn't really alive for the first X years of that. So I just want to start with some discussion about your investment principles and what you're looking for. I know that the small cap range for you is around a two and a half billion dollar market cap, and you invest in micro caps up to small caps. What are a couple of the factors that you're looking for? I know strong balance sheet, high returns on assets, but. What are a few of the factors that cause you to like a company that has a strong balance sheet versus others? Sure. We're in the business of the risk-reward business. So ultimately, although most people would say we're a value investor, I think we're a risk manager. Because, first place, a value is a kind of chewed-up word. It's overused. You know, who, who isn't a value investor? So I prefer a different sort of vocabulary of, of risk management. Uh, risk management is triply important in the small cap space because these are fragile enterprises. These are typically first-generation companies uh, in their management style. Typically, they are maybe gone through some difficult transition moments. Uh, Typically, they're vulnerable. They are thin in management. Um, and they might be a one-product company, so they're fragile. So we have to employ all the tools available to sort of manage these inherent risks, which are higher than a large company. Is volatility a factor in your risk assessment, this, the volatility of a stock? People out there equate uh, the gyrations of a stock price with whether or not that investment is risky. Do you, do you view risk that Not way? really. Not at all, really. Uh, we want to use volatility to our favor. We want to take advantage of volatility, certainly in the general market and in specific stocks. We're not going to avoid a volatile stock. First place, historic volatility may have nothing to do with future volatility. Um, So we don't really look at those factors. Uh, They are, as a group, more volatile. Mm -hmm. There's no question about it. Uh, We, as a manager, want to use that volatility to our favor. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to take advantage of the natural or specific volatility in the so there's a tension that exists at a, at a retail fund between trying to take advantage of the volatility of a stock price while trying to manage the the investors in your fund and their their anxiety that may well that's that's a that's a real question how do you manage expectations um, and um, we try hard at that we're we're never assuming that uh, the investor can be um, as comfortable with underperformance as they should be. Uh, It's a dangerous word, dangerous territory, dangerous subject to talk about underperformance, but it's a natural consequence of trying to be a little different. Do you think that the average retail investor is more nervous about losing to the index or losing capital, losing principal? Losing principal, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. Losing principal is not a good idea. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Our first job is to protect principal. Our first job is don't lose the money. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole idea of indexes and all that is a relatively recent phenomena. 
uh, one that I don't absolutely share as the goal. The real goal is sort of absolute returns, perhaps on a risk-adjusted basis, but absolute returns is the goal. It's the only plate you can eat from. You cannot eat from the plate of relative returns. So are you concerned within a fund about the number of holdings that are profitable? I mean, when you talk about not losing principal, is that trying to tell your teams, please don't pick any stock that loses money and we sell at a loss? Or please don't give us one year of down performance where we lose money over a 12-month? Or is it three-year or five-year? What's the time frame? Yeah. Well, neither. I mean, yeah. so the idea of risk management is to be highly conscious, very intentionally conscious of the risk factors in the company, in the potential investment, to set up a risk-reward profile, monitor that carefully to make certain we're up-to-date on changes, um, and to continue to manage the portfolio on a risk-reward basis. That does not mean ever you get linear absolute returns. Mm -hmm. So you will have absolute negative returns from time to time. You'll have plenty of relative underperformance periods. So a few risk factors that you look at in the business. I'll just give an example. Is it a risk factor for you if somebody owns 40% of the stock? No. No. That might even be a healthy factor. That might even be a positive. Let's say that 40% owner is the founder. Mm -hmm. Let's say it's the founder or the control group. We would certainly want to understand their how they got there, mm -hmm. their motivations, their culture, their their philosophy. Mm -hmm. So that would be a factor, but I wouldn't assume it's a risk factor. It's just a factor. How about the risk factor of uh, declining margins and, an, and a new competitor showing up into the marketplace? Well, there, that's, a, that's a risk factor. <laughs> uh, the uh, idea of you know, what's going on in the context of that company, in, the, in their environment, in their neighborhood, is very, very important. We are deep believers that all we can do is uh, get deep knowledge on the strategic forces that affect that company. We cannot be faster than the next guy in getting the uh, actual information from the company. We get it at the same time as everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't be up, more up-to-date than, than what everyone else has on quantitative information. But on qualitative things, we could assess, let's say we had a, uh, a feeling that margins were declining. We would talk to competitors. We would talk to this new competitor. We would talk to their customers. Mm -hmm. We would talk to their employees, ex-employees. We would try to get to the bottom of that. I know that you all talk to customers of the companies that you mm -hmm. invest in. How do you go about doing that? Well, that's, that's a, a difficult process, actually, uh, because customers... You know, to get to the bottom of the truth, the truth, the reality principle of do you intend to continue doing business with this company and why? Is it because you have no other choice? Is it because you have to? Is it because they bribe you? Is it because et cetera, et cetera? So we need to know not just their pattern of behavior, but why. And therefore, is it fragile? Is it sustainable? If you found that a small cap that is fragile in nature had an excellent growth rate, excellent return on assets. It had a founder in place, but um, six customers made up 57% of their business. Is that a no-no? And you will cross that off your list because of that customer concentration, or you would just watch those those eggs in the basket of their customer base very yeah. closely? Uh, great question. It, that's not a no-no. 
but it would be a concern. It, you know, cu- customer concentration is a risk factor. Mm-hmm. Now, it can be a positive if there are good customers, if the customers, maybe the customers put them in business. Maybe the customers need them more than they need the customer. Mm-hmm. So you never know mm-hmm. until you peel the onion. What do you think of the um, reflection that Warren Buffett had at one point in the last couple of years in evaluating his performance? He, singled down, he, he focused on a single factor that he felt had, had matched across all of his greatest stocks, which is that those businesses were able to raise prices over time. Sure. I don't have a problem with that comment, that uh, the strongest, you know, if you're a high-quality company, if you high re- have high returns on capital, it is probably because you have pricing power. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually that's a primary source to high returns. Mm-hmm. So that's always part of the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we would want to, you know, go deep on that. When you say high rates of return on invested capital or high rates of return on assets, does that is there a hard and fast number that you're looking for, or if it's directionally, if a company has return on assets of 4.7 percent, but it's up from 2.8 percent two years ago, is that more attractive to you? Obviously, there are many other factors involved in evaluating a company than say a company with double-digit return on assets that's declining. Great question. The rate of change is important, so we have to be sensitive to rate of change. In general, though, we're looking for companies that have sort of pre-tax, pre-interest returns on capital in the 20% range. So we're not talking about single digit. And rate of change is important. A company that is increasing returns are potentially much more attractive. How do you evaluate the culture, the internal culture of a business? There's a service now online called Glassdoor where past and present employees can review their companies anonymously. So you can go out and read what uh, any virtually any public company out there, the most highly rated public company and company of size culturally is Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, the people that are going to work at Facebook are incredibly passionate about working mm-hmm. at Facebook. It has very high reviews. I view that as a positive, but that's a struggle for me as an investor and for investors, particularly retail investors, to try and figure out what's going on inside of that business. Are people mm-hmm. excited to come to work? Is that a factor that really matters, or do you see that showing up in a, a quantity? You know, surveys are really complex. There, you get a lot of noise. You get a lot of this and that. It, it's very difficult. I'd say you need a much sort of longer longitudinal conversation with key people who have stayed with the company for a period of time, not necessarily joined them 10 minutes ago. Uh, you need to have an in-depth conversation. It can't be single factor. It can't be, do you like going to work? It can't be, do they have cool Friday afternoon beer parties? You know, it has to be much deeper than that. And we do attempt that. That is critical. Having a, a culture that is sustainable, that's real, that's authentic, is a great idea. Usually that comes with the, the kitchen when you have high returns. So I'm going to say something that I think you're going to disagree with, but I'm going to say it for the fun of it because I'm curious what you think. I have said that I believe if I could get the employee retention rates at every small public company, if I knew nothing else about the company, but simply invested in the companies with the highest rate of retention of their employees um, versus competition, because it's not fair to compare mm-hmm. a fast casual restaurant to a software business, but if that, that, that would be a single factor that I think would correlate with market outperformance. Mm-hmm. If you find places that people are staying, the other factors. I, I wouldn't fight you on that. Um, now, you know, there's too much of a good thing. Uh, retention could be 
meaning that you were not actually optimizing the company. Mm -hmm. It could mean that. Right. But in general, I think it's a good thing. Dividends and small cap companies. I remember, I love doing historical research. I remember looking at Walmart. Um, they came public, I think, in 1972. Uh, two years later, their stock had been cut in half with many other stocks in the, in the 1974 uh, bear market. Uh, and at that point, with, with I think a market cap of about 15 million, mm -hmm. they began to pay a dividend. Mm -hmm. um, what does a dividend signal to you? Not a, not a f required dividend or a, not a 7% yield at a small cap, but 1 to 3, 1 to 4% dividend from a small company. What, what are some of the things that management is telling you by, by paying it? I think, I think it's, it's extremely important. I think it is uh, more than symbolic. It is actually telling you that they believe in a, in a corporate governance or corporate principle that that the wealth they're creating, they're, they're willing to share it with you so that you have the opportunity to reinvest that any way you want, as opposed to, you know, we know everything, we'll retain everything, we will reinvest it because we know about everything. Mm -hmm. Now, to me, that's an invitation for uh, ego issues from a corporate standpoint to, for bad decisions. I think a much healthier environment is a company that understands they have a responsibility they have a, a social you know, contract that the wealth they're creating is ours. What about um, leverage of small caps? Do you simply eliminate companies above a certain um, debt to equity? Are there certain levels that you're not interested in? There's a small, um, uh, now it's a mid-cap company that I've really enjoyed following. It's a commercial oven business called Middleby. They've used leverage to acquire other small Mm -hmm. Technology has all been very focused. I, mm -hmm. I have a natural resistance to acquisition as the driving force of growth, but they have been an acquirer that has used leverage effectively mm -hmm. over the last 15 mm -hmm. years. It's an outlier for me as an investor, but do you, do you pretty much avoid those companies outright? Or? We have a general principle, which we try not to violate unless we really have a strong reasons. And the general principle is that assets to equity shouldn't be more than two to one. Now, we're not just talking debt here. We're talking about leverage that could relate to, you know, all sorts of short-term leverage, uh, payables, etc. So we have a sort of more universal standard. Uh, debt, obviously, is, is important. We don't want to have the double risk of operating leverage and financial leverage. So we want to focus on companies that, first place, if you have high returns, you probably don't need uh, leverage. Now, should companies use leverage from time to time for strategic, true strategic opportunities? Of course. So we're not black and white, but when we wake up in the morning, we are very much avoiding leverage in our space. Can you determine what percentage of your evaluation of a company is quantitative versus qualitative? I mean, do you, do you think that way at all? Um, uh, I, I just think well, that the average retail investor thinks it's primarily a numbers game, and whether they have the ability to read financial statements or not, and obviously that's a key and important part, but is there is there a weighting that you see? Well, the problem with, I mean, we, of course, do financial statement analysis. Of course, we're looking at the numbers, the history, et cetera. But that's, at the end of the day, a commodity. Everybody else is doing it. Everyone has the same skill sets, more or less. So that is important. But if you cannot sort of come to grips with some of these other factors, is their return sustainable? Is this culture some, someone I want to invest with? 
if you can't sort of come to grips with those things, you can't make a high conviction bet. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the holding period within your funds. Um, in general, I'd say an investor who's looking at retail funds, just the average person out there is trying to figure out which one to pick in their <laughs> 401k plan. If they focused on a low turnover, they're, they're, they're getting in a zone of people who are probably a little bit more focused on business analysis, long-term thinking, culture, et cetera. What has been the turnover rate at, at the Royce funds? Somewhere somewhere around 20%. Yeah. So that would mean somewhere around a five-year average holding period. Absolutely. Holding periods are, I think, if an investor did nothing else but focus on low turnover funds, they would be doing themselves an enormous favor. And in general, low turnover funds do very well. They have less costs. They probably are spending more time on business fundamentals as opposed to market fundamentals or market technicals. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they have a better shot at making a lot of money. What would happen if you gave a directive at Royce, we are going to extend our average holding period to eight years, and I want to see us do that? Do you believe that that would be a smart thing, number one, and do you believe that it would lead, well, I guess it's the same question. Do you believe it could lead to higher returns? We don't have a mandate like that. Um, when, people, when I've asked the question of when I'm beginning to look at a company, what is your sight line for that company? And it's forever. Mm -hmm. I would like to own companies that I would feel comfortable owning forever. Mm -hmm. That's the goal. That's the aspiration. The reality is things go bump in the night. Things are never as good as they look. Mm -hmm. Things change, etc. Mm -hmm. So holding periods come down from forever mm -hmm. uh, to a lesser number. Mm -hmm. But we have many stocks we've held for a long time. Mm -hmm. The goal, the aspiration, absolutely for us, is a long sight line. Mm -hmm. We want the compounding effect. Mm -hmm. There's nothing like owning a $10 stock that you're buying with a 15% compounding power and just having it go on and on. Mm -hmm. Nothing like it. Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't work out that way every day. It's an absurd, almost absurd for me to ask you about lengthening time horizon because you all are at the we, we try to lengthen. And that's one of, the, one of the many things that I deeply admire about Royce. Have you ever looked at the performance of the companies that you've sold? The reason I ask that is we, we carried that analysis out at the Motley Pool. And we're only, um, in terms of, we're a 20-year-old business, but really in tracking our investment returns, I would say we're, we're a little bit more than a decade. Mm. What we found in that period of time is that the stocks that we sold are, are outperformers. We're often selling after something has happened and mm -hmm. the price has come down to a level that it may mm -hmm. actually be attractive for a turnaround. Mm -hmm. um, but, but for different reasons, we didn't like the business anymore. The, the leadership wasn't, wasn't being honest in some way. They'd, they'd over-promoted themselves. But have you ever done analysis on, on the sales? No. I, I think it's a great idea, though. And you do end up selling for different reasons, that your conviction is waning, um, that, uh, you know, you can't get the kind of access to the management that you once had, that there's been a change in something. Uh, so you sell. That might be a good reason or not. Um, I do think it's a good discipline to move on when things have changed. If you bought it for this reason and then you're holding it for another reason, that's usually a danger sign. So there are reasons to sell. Um, and it would be interesting to look at whether sales mm -hmm. work out. Mm -hmm. People have often asked whether our largest positions are our best performers mm -hmm. or some other in the spectrum. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I don't have the information on that either. One would hope the largest mm -hmm. position would be the best performer, but they may not be. Mm -hmm. Well, sometimes, the, yeah, yeah, I can see a, a re reasons that it could play out in different ways. What is your evaluation of the attractiveness of small caps versus large caps? Do you do? I, I know Peter Lynch. I remember had, had written that when the Russell 2000 is at a multiple of 1.2 times the multiple of large caps or lower, that's an attractive time to buy small caps. When it gets to two times the multiple of large caps or the S&P, it's no longer attractive to buy S&P. Do you have, I mean, to buy small caps, do you have methodology for evaluating whether small caps are going to be in favor for the next X three to five years or not? Our sight line on whether they will win or lose versus large cap is no better than a flipping a tossing a coin. Mm -hmm. So we will have kind of cocktail conversation thoughts about that, but it doesn't mean they're true. Mm -hmm. The beauty and the wonder of small caps is it's such a big universe. Mm -hmm. I can construct a portfolio any day of the week that have the opportunity to outperform anything mm -hmm. because the the vastness of this universe. This is domestically six, eight thousand companies, um, and you know globally five times that. So to construct a hundred company portfolio that has extraordinary risk reward, I can do every day of the week. Mm -hmm. Can you talk through an example of your favorite investment or one of your greatest investments and one of your biggest mistakes at any point over the last 40 years, something where these factors came together, you saw it, you invested in it, and it delivered outsized returns over a long period of time, and then one that did not play out as you'd hoped. Sure. A, a, a great example of one that's been successful, uh, and we have plenty of losers, and we'll get to that, is Lincoln Electric. Lincoln Electric is a niche company. We love niche companies, single product. They're in the welding equipment business. One would think that is a small business. It's not at all. Globally, it's a big business, tens of billions of dollars of business. It's a consumable business. It is somewhat cyclical. It is extremely high quality. They have used their free cash flow in appropriate ways to acquire competitors. Uh, they have been very active globally, so they've reached beyond the shore. Uh, they've done, uh, they have a very strong Midwest culture. We love Midwest companies. I like to think we are a New York-based investor that is culturally Midwest. Um, they have a, an exceptional uh, opportunity set. They have high returns, free cash flow, no, no net debt. Uh, they represent all the good things, and we have allowed our investment to compound over well over 10 years. I'm sure we've made over tenfold, to use Peter Lynch's mm -hmm. number, of 10-bagger. Mm -hmm. What about one that didn't work out? We had a recent one last year, Knight, the, the great um, over-the-counter trading mm -hmm. company. We had a long-term investment in Knight. We were very, very thrilled with Knight's strategy as a dominant market maker. Uh, very high returns on capital, and it's a great example of how things can go bump in the night. Out of the blue, new technology, pressed a button, things blew up, mm -hmm. literally overnight, mm -hmm. and we lost a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And is that something where you look at that and think, you know what, you just have to build a portfolio that can withstand a failure because it's going to happen, or is that something you look at and say, yes, but we can learn from this and apply 
our evaluation of a company that relies on technology or a trading business that has this potential exposure, and we need to institutionalize that knowledge? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, certainly it's a great wake-up call that things can go wrong and that that risk factor of having a technology infrastructure, we certainly were aware of that, but we in no way assigned a, uh, you know, a probability to that happen, uh, and it did. So it is another reminder that a portfolio is better than an individual stock. Um, I definitely believe in portfolio construction as an important uh, risk management. Mm. Just a few more questions. One of them is about p- portfolio construction. Let's just take an individual that has a few hundred thousand dollars to invest. Let's say they're 50. Let's say they have, um, they're, they're a small business executive. They're familiar with business financial statements. They're, they're investing in stocks. How many stocks should be in their portfolio? If you were, if you were having a dinner party conversation with them sure. and they said, you know, I've got 57 stocks or I've got seven stocks. I mean, what what number sounds like a good range for somebody in a situation like that? I believe in a bigger number than would be typical. Uh, I believe in both principles of some concentration, but I we manage in our broadly diversified funds like Penn Mutual and Total Return, hundreds of stocks. We have a R&D section of the portfolio where stocks that we like, we're waiting for the right price, or we're starting to sell it and we're not finished selling it. So stocks that go in and out are a component of what we do. Now, as an independent investor, that would be silly to have all of that. But um, I would be in the 25 plus stocks, and I would be thinking he should be using mutual funds. Mm-hmm. What I just heard you say is interesting to me, that you would buy a stock here, even if it was overvalued, if you love the business, take a small position to learn about it, and hopefully find an opportunity to get a price, better price over time. That would be true. We do try to separate the what we call the enterprise conviction, the understanding of the company, from the valuation. Uh, it's too easy to mesh those all up. So we, tr- in our internal conversation, we do try to separate that. And I will buy something that is somewhat overpriced in order to begin to understand its kind of valuation pattern. Mm -hmm. And with the knowledge that I'm taking a 20 basis point position, Mm -hmm. to have a full conviction for us, it would be 100 basis points. So we're a long way from that. Mm -hmm. And we would be waiting. Mm -hmm. Worst case, it continues to go up. Mm -hmm. Best case, it goes down. Mm -hmm. And we get to buy more. Mm -hmm. Do you have an assessment of your results, stock by stock, in terms of the percentage of, let's say, profitable investments out of every 10 that you would expect to make, and the percentage of market-beating investments out of every 10. In other words, you bought 10 stocks, or let's say you bought 100 stocks. Do you have a sense, looking back over 40 years or over a 10-year period, that 71% of them were index-beating and 77% were profitable? Do you have any assessment of how many winners per 10 stocks you need to deliver the performance that you have? It's a great question. I don't. Mm -hmm. 90% of our rolling five-year returns for all of our funds beat the index. Mm -hmm. That is not the goal. The goal is not to beat the index. The goal is to deliver sufficient absolute, appropriate absolute returns. Mm -hmm. As close to 15% would be my internal goal. Mm -hmm. But in fact, we do beat the index 90% of the time on rolling five-year returns. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're asking a, a different question. 
uh, is well, each individual your, stock. That's primary aim. Yeah, You're not right. trying to get no. a certain number of no. stocks to win. or No, lose and that. we would never buy a stock because of its relative possibilities. Mm -hmm. Does that mean, this is a strange and perhaps unfair question, but it is a curiosity of mine, does that mean if the market, if the Russell 2000 were up 17% a year mm -hmm. and you were up 15% a year over that five-year period, is everyone high-fiving at the Royce Barbecue um, that summer? Or is everyone saying, you know, we lost by two percentage points to the Russell, but we hit our 15% marker? I would be drinking champagne. Okay. <laughs> and sharing it with the folks. Right, so when the market is down... And of, and, of course, one year is never the right measuring period, but I hear your question. Yeah. Oh, we, oh yeah, I, I actually meant over a five-year period. Yeah, you five. looked out over a long period of time, and you had hit your 15% mark, but over that three years or five years, it had fallen below the Russell. You're fine with that. Totally fine. Totally fine with that, yeah. Um, I just want to talk a little... We would be punished in, our, in the relative standings, but that's life. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about, just briefly, about the pen... Uh, fund acquisition and purchase and founding of the business. And a, just one or two questions about the culture that you've developed. You called it a Midwest culture, and we'll go back to that in a second. But just when you when you made the decision to go into this business, can you reflect on any of the factors and thoughts you had as you made that jump and what the fund looked like that you acquired and how it's changed over the last 40 years? I um, was in the research world. And in the late 60s, you could be a researcher and a broker. So I was both. I had as a client, uh, a client who was very knowledgeable in the investment process, and we stumbled across the opportunity to buy the management contract of Pennsylvania Mutual Fund from a, a firm that was going you know, bankrupt. Uh, and we did. And he ran it for three or four years, and then I took it over from him. Mm -hmm. uh, I had confidence that we could do it because some of my clients were mutual funds. And I met a lot of these PMs, and I basically said, if they could do it, I could I do it. <laughs> um, the Midwestern culture of a mutual fund business in New York City. Um, um, from, from everything I know about Royce, one would assume, well, you're in New York. From everything I know about Royce, I'm surprised you're in New York. So what is the, how is the, how is the culture different than, than a Wall Street firm or different than a, a high-frequency trading business? Or, um, I mean, if you, if you take the retail investor who's seen a lot of headlines over the last five years and just paintbrushes, all of these businesses are the same. They're all using leverage. They're all speculating. They're all looking for short-term rewards. So how, how is the culture distinctly different here? How is the compensation structure different here? How is the evaluation of investors different here than it is at some of the firms that we saw run into crisis in 2009. Sure. We have a very long-term approach. We hire seasoned PMs that have successful backgrounds who have figured out their, where they want to be. They are desirous of being in a dedicated culture, which we are. We're dedicated to our zone. Uh, they have matured uh, in all the other ways, not just in their investment process, in their conduct of their life. So we have that advantage, um, which I think is a significant advantage and a very attractive advantage, and yet we're in the epicenter of the investment world. 80 years from now, none of us are going to be here in this room. What is it about Royce that's going to be, why will the firm be successful decades from now where succession is, I mean, that's, that's a potential sell factor for me on the companies that I love. When I see 
uh, the founder stepping away, and he's run uh -huh. the business for 27 years as a public company. Uh -huh. That worries me. When Costco CEO stepped down, it didn't worry me that much because the announcement was in paragraph eight of their quarterly earnings report. It wasn't big fanfare. It was this business has been built to last, and I've been a part of it, but it's going to succeed for decades beyond me. So what, what, what are the one or two factors that you see here that cause you to think this business is going to flourish, and I look for this when I look to invest in companies where succession is an issue over the next 25 years? I'm glad you asked that question. I think it ultimately will be the integrity of the process. The, the process is well screwed in here. It is not, I am not, I do not have the kind of, um, high ego needs to require that everyone perform exactly the way I do it, but I absolutely insist on a sort of substantive, uh, high-integrity approach to risk-reward, which is the underlying theme, and a, a deep conviction and passion for the business and a long-term orientation. Uh, the Royce Family of Funds has been a, a group that I've learned from and enjoyed following uh, your work and the work of your team and being able to read about your approach in your in your uh, letters uh, to shareholders. So, uh, And I've certainly followed a lot of companies that you all have followed and learned from your about. I'm, I'm always happy to see that Royce is a shareholder in a small cap that I'm looking at. So thank you so much for spending time with us and uh, we learned a lot and really enjoyed it. Great, I did too.